Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In this episode of Boss Files. We've treated it from the beginning as a curtains up, curtains down live production. Every 45 minutes, we throw a live event, and we want every one of the people that have clipped into those bikes to feel like they're part of something special. Got Soul? Meet Soul Cycle CEO Melanie Whelan. She's guiding the fitness brand into its next chapter with more than 90 studios across the U.S. and Canada, with London also on the way. She insists Soul Cycle is not a fad, but don't hold your breath for the company to go public. Why she says an IPO is not on the table right now. When you have great shareholders and you're privately held and you have shareholders who are very aligned with what you want to do and you have a highly profitable business and a great balance sheet, there's really no need unless opportunistic. Plus, a millennial mentor? The CEO holds monthly meetings with her younger colleague to keep up with all things hip. Here's my conversation with SoulCycle CEO Melanie Whelan. Thank you for joining me, Melanie. Good to have you. Thank you for having me, Poppy. So you wrote in Harvard Business Review a few years ago, quote, we don't think of ourselves as a fitness company. And that struck me because that's exactly what I think of SoulCycle <laughs> as. When I go, it is a fitness company. How do you see it? So from the beginning, the idea was really simple, that fitness should be fun, right? We all know fitness is something that we should do for ourselves. But too often, especially in New York, and you and I are both raising kids yeah. and working in New York, we view it as something we have to do, right? Something to take off yeah. of our to-do lists. Yeah. We wanted to create an experience that you actually looked forward to doing. That you get to do it. That you It's a privilege. It's an experience. It's a community. You see your friends. It's musical. It's emotional. And it's connected to other people. I mean, there's nothing like being in a room with 60 people moving to the rhythm of the music. And just to give people a sense of when you started and you joined SoulCycle 2012 as Chief Operating Officer, 22-person team working out of a laundry room in Tribeca. Yes. True story. True story. All right. Now 90 studios <laughs> yes. across the U.S. and Canada. I know international expansion is a big thing for you, and we'll get to that in a minute. But you say this is like producing a 45-minute show every day. We've treated it from the beginning as a curtains-up, curtains-down live production. Every 45 minutes, we throw a live event, and we want every one of the people that have clipped into those bikes to feel like they're part of something special. Is this why you have a chief talent officer that you hired from the entertainment industry? It is absolutely why we have not only a chief talent officer, but over 25 people on our talent team who are really focused on scouting great people from around the world to come and teach on the bikes. We say it's like American Idol on a bike. We host auditions. <laughs> oh, gosh, cities. except I hope no one's judging. Oh, you mean for the, for for the auditions. instructors? Yeah, we will okay. pop up all over the country and hold auditions. And really? becoming an instructor at SoulCycle has become really a career and a coveted career mm -hmm. for professionals, not just from the fitness industry, but we've got former dancers, actors, professional athletes, and a lot of our instructors actually grow up within the company. Professional athletes. Who's like the... I don't know. I don't want to say coolest. I don't want to, you know, cut anyone out. But who's like the least expected person? I don't know if they're a celebrity, former athlete that's an instructor. 
That's really hard to answer. I will tell you, yesterday we do, um, once a year we celebrate five-year anniversaries of everyone that's been with the company for five years. And the amount of people around the room that told the stories of how they started at the front desk, Mm -hmm. were checking in our riders, and one of our master instructors said to them, you would be great on the podium. Hmm. And they would tell these stories with tears in their eyes saying, you believed in me, and you saw something that I never saw for myself. And I think those, honestly, are the stories that are probably the most unexpected for us because we hire hundreds of front desk staff every year. And when they grow up to be on the podium, that's really special. Of course. Any former, like, I don't know, NFL players, dancers, skaters? We we, we truly have it all. We've got hockey players. We've got football players. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. But you didn't think this would happen, which, which struck me. I mean, you never thought you guys could or would achieve this or get this big. The idea was that we would open 25 studios, coastal markets, New York, L.A., San Francisco. That was the five-year plan when we embarked on this in 2012, and the story has obviously been wildly different. And I think it's because not only do we have a great team and a great experience, but the, the timing was really right for what we create. It's a place to go to disconnect from technology for 45 minutes and to have someone tell you that you can be more powerful, not just in the room, but in your life. And I think now... With the way the world is working and we have data and information coming at us 24-7, it's really timely. I sneak my iPhone in because of the babies. (laughs) Like if school calls or the nanny, but I I turn it over. So so. here's what I'll tell you. Yeah, what am I supposed to do? You're supposed to give your phone to our front desk staff. They'll come get me? You're supposed to say to them, these are the names or the numbers I'm looking for, and they will watch your phone for you. And they'll say someone called. Or the other thing you should do is tell your nanny, here's where I'm going to be, call the studio, and they'll always take that phone call. All right, done. Do that tomorrow (laughs) when I go to the NoHo location. Um, When you became CEO in 2015, you've said, look, it's it's been the ride of a lifetime, pun intended on that one, right? But I'm interested in whether, Melanie, you raised your hand and said, I want this. I want to be CEO. I did. I did at the time. You know, it was, I would say, very unexpected. We were running really fast and growing the business, opening 15, 18 studios a year. It wasn't something I had set my sights on truly whatsoever. I was very happy operating the business and working with our founders. But in a moment of transition and a a time for us to continue to grow the company, I did raise my hand and say, "I'd, I'd love to be considered because I think we've got a lot more that we could do with this brand and this experience. But that's, you know, that's hard and scary, and I don't know if I'd be able to do that. And I think I'm, you know, pretty confident and pretty ambitious, but really raising your hand. Because then you're saying, I know that I, I think I would be the best person for this job. I will tell you, this is where I think having a great partner in life is everything. Okay. I remember the night sitting in our apartment and having the conversation and saying, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I'm the best person for this job. And I actually love the job that I'm in. I love this brand that we're, we're building. And he said you're going for this job. Why, why would you even doubt yourself for one minute? And he said, and if you don't, I will think differently of you. Oh, wow. And that sort of moment of accountability between yeah. us, we talk about a it's lot. Important. And I think, you know, I talk a lot about how I have a wonderful partner and 50-50 in, in everything that we do. But even those tough conversations, I think, are even more important to have someone pushing you. Is it lonely at the top? <laughs> uh It is not an easy job. It is not an easy job. I think for me, I love what I do and I believe so fully in the vision and the mission that we are looking to accomplish. And I believe so firmly in our strategic growth plan. Yes. Um, 
and I'm so proud of the team that we've built, starting with what happens in the studios every day to the management team that we've brought in with different experiences and diversity of background over the last couple of years. So I'm more excited than ever about what we're doing. Um, but you but, have talked about it being a little, I mean, a lot of CEOs say being at the top can be lonely at You times. know, we always say, if it gets to my desk, it's a problem that someone else couldn't solve. Yeah, so they're, all they're right. They're not the easy, easy problems that come in. No. Um, and they're hard decisions that you have to make, for sure. But you have been willing to take risks. You've opened, you know, experimental things. I, I went to Soul Annex, for example. And what struck me is when you said, plan for any downside and you can take any risk. That's an interesting leadership lesson. If you plan correctly and talk about with your team all of the downsides, you can likely take that risk. I think that's right. I, mean, I learned that early in my career from Richard Branson, actually. He at always Virgin. used to say, at Virgin, yes. Um, and that he took lots of big risks sure. and lots of he, crazy he industries. He still does <laughs> with his own Personally. life and with his business. <laughs> as well as in business. And it always struck me, again, very early in my career, how he was almost more focused on the downside than he was on the upside. Yeah. Because he knew he had the confidence and the vision yep. to move through challenge and move into very structured um, industries that needed to be uh, shaken up. He did. But what he knew was he needed to build a team around him that could really manage through that downside. And that's always stuck with me. He's a guest on Boss Val, so people should listen to his. It's really an extraordinary story. Incredible. What is, what is the single greatest lesson he taught you? Uh, that it's a people first world. So I, I had this um, experience that I talk about sometimes. I was 25. I was a corporate development manager on the team. We were building Virgin America at the time, uh, which was a domestic air carrier to be named something Virgin. And I thought this was the most exciting thing that we could possibly be doing in the world and certainly within the portfolio of Virgin in the U.S. market. And Richard was coming to town and I had been working for months on the business plan and the hiring plan. And uh, my boss said to me, you're going to go and present to Richard in the hotel lobby when he arrives. And mm. I thought, this is great. Wow. So I get all prepared and I'm rehearsing everything. And I, I go to the hotel and I'm sitting in the lobby and it's seven o'clock and it's eight o'clock and it's nine o'clock and there's no Richard. And I'm like, I. I where, Where could he possibly be? I have the most important business that we're developing for him <laughs> in the U.S. And he came in two, two and a half hours late. And he said, you know, I'm so sorry. It was so gracious. So and this was before the days of Blackberries and everything. Sure. He said, so graciously, um, I always take the cabin crew out when we land on a Virgin Atlantic flight, no matter where in the world. Wow. And so I've been with the cabin crew and we, we think one thing led to another. And you know how it goes. And in that moment, it really crystallized for me that there's nothing more important than the business that you're in. No matter where you think you're going, the people that are with you today yeah. are the ones that are creating the opportunity for the future is what's most important. Well, it's like, you know, that famous Maya Angelou quote. Now, I'll sort of, you know, won't get it perfectly, but people never remember what you did, but they'll remember how you made them feel. Yes. And for him, you're saying it was about how did he make that team that worked for him feel? Mm -hmm. And you focus on that now. Amazingly. Two people quoted that in our five-year anniversary party oh. yesterday, that quote, because we yesterday. talk a lot about that at Seoul. You know, it's not necessarily about the class or the bike or the check-in. It's about how you make those riders feel. And we want to make sure, because we are a pay-per-class model, we want to make sure that every single person that comes in that door has an experience where they're not going to forget mm -hmm. that someone at that desk knew their name, well, knew their kid needed them. Sure. <laughs> and to that point... You have been pretty candid in your discussion about how hiring the wrong person can be a, a big problem and how you've sort of changed how you interview. It takes a lot, I think, of courage to wait and have a seat vacant for as long as possible to wait for the right person. It's worth it. Because you think 
we're moving so fast. We have to have someone in that seat. We can't possibly do it without them. But if you get the wrong person in there quickly, it, you're just going to end up, they're going to leave your... So you got burned at some point. Oh, many, many times in many different types of positions, whether it be when we were building the, you know, the first management team for the first studio that wasn't in New York. You know, where we made a decision quickly on something that didn't end up working out. Got it. Um, two positions in our corporate office. I think the the principle of that uh, hire slow, fire fast. That age old adage is is true. Yeah, it's true. Oh, well, okay. Hire slow, fire fast. <laughs> kind of in your gut when you know it. Yes. You know it. More from my conversation with SoulCycle CEO Melanie Whelan after the break. Most people, certainly I, only have known SoulCycle for the bike studios and then, you know, the Annex experiment. You actually have launched, you've got a retail side of the company now, a lot of the gear. You've launched a media business and you have hired some big names from big media companies. I mean, you, you've, you've brought in people from Glamour, from Mashable, from Vox. What's the play here? So we have a ridership that says to us all the time, I want to take that feeling and that magic of what happens in that room with me. And we've been hearing this for years and years. And so the idea behind the media team okay. is to start to create experiences that decouple the magic of SoulCycle from the bike and from the studio and help our riders extend that in their lives. And the first thing um, that we've done is launch music outside of the studios. So like a Spotify, Pandora that, thing? Yes. We have playlists and we have motivational coaching tracks that are on um, okay. Apple Music. But we've launched an event series called Sound by Soul Cycle. The most recent event was up in Harlem. We took over a church and we had two musical artists come, Louis the Child and Ellie Dewey. We had 350 people uh, moving to the rhythm of the music. We had the bikes up on the stage more as performance art. And the idea was let's take the soul out of the studio and bring uh-huh. it into a much larger venue and make it more music. And how do you make it? Is this like you're competing with Live Nation at some, at some level? I mean, you, you make revenue comes from ticket sales? That was actually for the brand. Okay. So that was not a ticketed event. But the long, I mean, you made these big hires. You're obviously going to make money on this. That's the goal, right? We, we are going to grow this in a couple of different ways. Okay. And, and we're working through that now. But for us right now, what we want to do is give our riders an opportunity to spend more time with us, whether that be through content that we create in these live events or in ways that we can take that content and package it for them as they go. Well, that would tie back sort of to the what the founders did, which is instead of s- spending that, I guess it was $2,000 they had left on ads, yes. they spent it on T-shirts, so sort of people were the advertising. Yes. In a sense, this is a big branding play as well, right? And it, it absolutely is, and in, in the world of... Social media, yes. you know, being such a huge growth engine for us and for the brand, the ability for us to amplify our message and our experience in that way through something that Lewis the Child could create or the Chainsmokers just hosted a private event in our Las Vegas studio and then took the There's 60 riders. There's something that doesn't go together with Chainsmokers <laughs> and SoulCycle, but okay. Well, I don't know if you've seen. I'll, I I'll show you I this. Don't. One of their videos in 2014, they actually filmed at SoulCycle, really? which was oh, really, great. really funny. They've been fans of the brand for a long time, but their, you know, their music is really inspiring yeah. and yeah. moves people. Our yeah. mission is to move people to I move the world. I was thinking more like chain smoking, no. actually smoking. <laughs> yes, there you go. See, so I need a millennial mentor, which we'll get to in a moment to get me hip. Um, I've read that you've learned quite a bit from Disney and from Starbucks, and I'm wondering what you've learned from them. So I looked at Starbucks a lot in terms of 
Howard Schultz has always said that he wanted to build a place that wasn't just about the coffee, but that was about the community and really a third place for people to go. And I, as they have grown that business enormously, globally, um, he and his leadership team have really stayed true to that mission of being people first, being community first, um, and always innovating around the coffee and the offering that they have in those in their locations. Um, so we do look to them a lot. I think they have an ethos and a way of being that's very similar to who we we want to be. Um, you know, we we look to Disney because they're a they're a live experiences business that has figured out how to translate the power of great talent right into theme parks and retail and other experiences around a whole ecosystem that's based on this idea of being a kid and the joy that comes from that. And there's, you can't really say the word Disney without smiling and thinking about your favorite character. I can't wait till I take my kids to Disney World. I mean, I want to take them like tomorrow. My husband's like, <laughs> they're not even big enough to get on the ride. And they will but. love it. But that, that's, and that's what we want SoulCycle to be, right? And that's why it's never been about a bike. It's been about an experience that you yeah. look forward to doing. And time for yourself. Well, yes. So let's talk a little bit about Howard Schultz and what you learned from him. He's someone I know well and have covered, uh, uh, you know, his, his leadership and the business for years. And I'll never forget, Melanie, a few years ago when, when he joined me for an interview. And he talked about a new store that they opened in Ferguson, Missouri. And this is right after all of what played out in Ferguson there, right? And what he found was that it became one of their best performing stores in the United States. Mm -hmm opening in a low-income area. And when you look at the 90 soul cycles across the U.S. right now, they're all in cities where the average income is at or above the national average. And I'm interested in, you know, when I think about soul and I think about your, your mission statement, it's bring soul to the people. And it's not cheap. You know, I think my class locally is about $35. Um, have you thought about that and expansion into more low-income areas and how that might be possible and, and if that's important for the brand? Yeah, we... We've actually thought about that a lot in, in terms of soul to the people, exactly as you said. And the way that we have approached this is we actually have in our 90 studio locations excess inventory in terms of class times that we wouldn't be able to fill and also fairly low income neighborhoods and communities that are very close to where we operate today. Sure. And so we've gone after this starting in 2014 by creating a program called Soul Scholarships where we bring in teens from these underserved communities and work with community organizations to bust them in for not just a soul cycle class, but for a whole mentorship program that we've designed around that. And the idea is that, you know, we always joke that soul cycle is like a gateway drug in your life. You start with soul and then you start eating better and sleeping better and making these other changes in your life. And so for these teens in these underserved communities that may not have mm. access to education around healthy eating and fitness habits, we want to start them on soul because it's fun, Right. And then we bring in experts around how to make good choices in the grocery store, things that they can huh. bring home to their families. And you've been doing this for four years. We have been. And that's fascinating. And in all the interviews I've read of you and seen, I haven't heard about that. And I, I wonder how many people know about that. I mean, good. That's we, great. We talk about it a lot locally yeah. in the studios because it's our local studio teams that actually create those relationships and go out and, and What have you program. learned from it? Like, what... What has worked? Clearly, it's working, right, if it's four years in, you five know, years in. It's working. I would say that we've learned both good and bad. We've learned that it's hard to scale something that isn't your core business. Got it. And you need to resource things appropriately um, when you want to go after something new. Um, but I think what we've also learned is that when an experience is fun and musical and emotional and you put 
real heart behind it, that this the impact that we can have as a brand in the world is, I think, even bigger than we expected it to be. And is there a way, do you think, to, to scale as you expand internationally and more and more across the U.S. into actually opening studios in some of those lower-income areas, maybe pricing down some of the classes? Do you think that's possible? Is it something you're interested in? It's something that we've talked about and honestly as a young and fast growth company something we just we haven't put capital against right now because right. we've been so focused on opening the studios and the markets we have but it is very important to us to give back to those communities around us and in, in addition to soul scholarships we raise a lot of money locally in the studios that we have and that frankly up until now is where we have been focused but so maybe we have spoken about got yes. it tell me about reckless optimism <laughs> I want to, like, write that across my mirror every morning and read it. I think it goes back to what you were saying about, is this job a lonely job? You know, there are barriers that you can think are not, you know, that are insurmountable. And, you know, to sit in this role and to push through with a competitive landscape that's evolving with, you know, ultimately we're competing for people's time. I mean, you're up at two in the morning, you're working long Not hours. Two in, the mor- Not two in the morning, four in the morning, but thanks <laughs> for the, the extra credit. <laughs> and you're working the way that you are and you've got kids and you're being pulled away from your family. You know, people have to really view this as the best use of their time. And hmm. so to push through that, you know, it, I think it takes reckless optimism and hope and belief in what you're doing to bring people along with you to say, guys, we are going to pivot this and we're going to go global and we're going to not focus on domestic openings right now. And we are going to be able to do all of this by May without reckless optimism. I don't know if we could actually get there. That's a good point. So a question becomes the evolution of the brand. Uh, International expansion is a big focus of yours right now. London, elsewhere. What should we expect? So in 2019, we're very focused on London. We think it is a tremendous city, one yeah. of my favorite cities in the world. And we're going to open three or four locations this year, um, starting later this year. Mm-hmm. And we think that London is a real gateway city for us for the rest of the world. But the team right now is very focused on London. Alone, it's, it's a city not unlike New York in that we think we can have many locations because it's a city of smaller mm-hmm. communities. That's true. That I think we'll be excited about what we bring. How does Equinox, which is the you know, majority shareholder in, in SoulCycle, how, how does Equinox see the future of SoulCycle? You know, we are great partners with Equinox and have been since 2011. That's actually how I arrived over yeah, at SoulCycle. Um, and also with the related companies who are also our, our majority shareholders. And, you know, they, they have been phenomenal investors and strategic partners to us. I think they see it very similarly to the way that we see it, that fitness is a trend that is growing and accelerating in the world, that this idea of people taking fitness with them outside of the clubs and the studios and wanting to engage with these brands on a 24-7 basis is a really big idea, that global uh, market expansion is a big opportunity. And so we're, we're all, all of the family of brands, I would say, between Equinox and Blink Fitness, which is yep. their um, lower cost uh, fitness offering, which is phenomenal. You know, we're all really focused on going after this opportunity as quickly as possible. One, you know, your main argument in, in what you wrote for Harvard Business Review, I think it was last year or 2017, was we're not a fad. And you laid out the case. <laughs> and I think it's been clear in your expansion, right, that you haven't been a fad so far. It's true you've not closed one studio? Not one studio. Um, 
And you see all these other things popping up. Rumble, boxing studio, I know Equinox has invested in them. How do you not become a fad? I think you have to continue to challenge yourself to do it differently and better and evolve and adapt. Uh, we have continued to keep pace with our riders and ask them what else you want from us. That's where the Annex came from. That's where Activate, our hit training class, came from. That's where a lot of our new markets come from. Hmm. Is we get over 5,000 emails a year of people asking us, please bring SoulCycle to our city, our town. I'll help you. I know these people. Yeah. And so just continuing to evolve the experience and also just continuing to thank and connect with our ridership. Is this where your millennial mentor comes in? Tell me about her. So my millennial mentor, I think, comes in more around both life questions that we were asking sure. earlier, as well as, you know, as we're thinking about new programs, new marketing campaigns, um, new social programs, some of the media activations, you know, I think having a multi-generational workforce and a multi-generational consumer base means you need multi-generational representation. You actually go and spend the day with her. She's awesome. She will so plan time for us to spend together and we'll uh, coordinate an afternoon where we'll just go either see cool stuff, do cool stuff, eat cool stuff, or experience cool stuff together. Makes you a better CEO? I, I think so. I think, look, the other thing I learned um, from Richard was really the power of listening. And I've been very fortunate to work f with great and for great people over the course of my career. Um, and I would say starting with my father, who really taught me that there's really no replacement for listening to your team and asking them the question because they are the ones that are likely closer to the business, especially now that I'm the CEO. And so uh, making sure that you're listening at all levels of the organization and yeah. taking the time to ask the questions I think is really important. I want to talk about your mom and your dad in a minute because they were very influential, as all of our parents are, but your dad was an entrepreneur and the work that your mom did to help him as he built, I think, seems like it's impacted you a lot. Before we get to that, though, um, IPO. You guys were about to IPO a few years ago. You were CEO and you pulled back. So walk us through that story. Yeah, so Related and, and Equinox as our shareholders, as we talked about, have always taken a long-term view of the business. And we looked in 2015 to IPO uh, the company opportunistically, but didn't need the growth capital at the time, um, nor now, for us to continue to grow with the plan that we have. And so it's not something that's on the table for us right now, and we'll continue to grow through our own cash flow. The oh, it's not. It's not on the table. Not on the table right now. We actually withdrew our filing earlier this year, and the company's highly profitable and well-capitalized, and so not something that we're looking at right now. Why, you know, I've had, had some leaders, like Kendra Scott, for example, who has built a billion-dollar business with, with her jewelry, um, and I also talked about this on, on Boss Files, and, you know, she likes being a private company. And sort of the, the you know, gives you a little bit more leeway in the decisions that you're making, et cetera. Do you prefer to run a private company, at least for now? Is that is that your outlook? I'm just interested in why you're not interested in a public offering at this point. Yeah, I think because we're so focused both on our core plan of opening new studios, but also these new growth initiatives around our retail business, around our international expansion. You mean expansion, like to take these risks? And exactly, our brand media and everything that we are working on there in terms of extending our experience. Now is not the right time for us to be a public company. And to have to answer quarterly to that investors. exactly right. right. You know, it became very clear to me as part of the preparation process. It's a lot about comp sales reporting and a lot about expectation management. Right. And when you have great shareholders and you're privately held and you have shareholders who are very aligned with what you want to do 
and you have a highly profitable business and a great balance sheet, there's really no need and less opportunistic. Yeah, there have been a lot of even big bank CEOs who've talked about the problem with Wall Street expectations and meeting those expectations versus looking at what's good for the long-term growth of a company. Exactly. Um, Competition, Peloton. Tell me about the first time you heard about Peloton and what you thought. First time I heard about Peloton was probably in 2012 or 13. Uh, we actually met John uh, way back when, as he was getting started, and heard that he had an idea to create an experience somewhat like what the boutiques were offering, but at home. So it's it's been years that we followed the story, um, and I think you know for us what we've seen is that you know an opportunity really does exist out there now um, because people are and our riders specifically. Um, are time starved and are looking for ways to connect with us outside of the studio that we think there's there's a real opportunity there. So threat for soul cycle or opportunity for soul cycle? Do you think you might jump into the home I don't even know the word home cycling <laughs> game? Will we, will there be a, a direct soul competitor to Peloton where someone can buy a bike for their home and get the soul experience in their living room? So what we think in fitness and in experiential, what will ultimately serve our customer best is something that is both physical in our studio locations, there's only one place that you can get that kind of experience, as well as a digital extension. There's no question that our riders want to engage with us outside of the studio. So I would say our approach you know, is not an at-home product, but much more of an ecosystem of offerings for our riders that both exist in the studios that we have today, will exist digitally for them, and then also experientially as things like the church in Harlem or in Las Vegas. But not, but probably not a bike at home. We'll, 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 we'll talk see. to you about all that right. later. Um, <laughs> you know, it's hard to find all the data on this, and I'm interested in what metrics you guys look at, but something that I saw through Second Measure, which is a data company that looked at this, showed that Peloton had recently taken a slight edge over SoulCycle in terms of U.S. customers. Is that data you look at? Do you have other figures? And what does that tell you in terms of the, the way you're growing the business? Yeah, we, we saw that report. You know, the, the data was incorrect and inaccurate. Um, we look at our data every day. So oh, it's we, wrong. We, I mean, according to your internal numbers. It, it, it's not accurate. Not accurate. But we do track, I mean, we track everything in our business. We are very, very, uh, very data-driven company. Um, and our ridership continues to grow. Our revenue continues to grow. Our unit openings continue to grow. The engagement with the brand continues to grow. Um, and we're a highly profitable company. It's, it's a little bit of a different business model that we're in. We're a a growth company that's also profitable and growing off of our own balance sheet. To what excites you the most about that growth this year? I mean, look, so much London, media, experiences. What are you most psyched about? I think I'm excited about all of it. I think I'm most excited about our team. We have built a tremendous team, and I, I know this, this is the team that can actually execute all of that because you know, th- we have an enormous opportunity with the brand and the, the community of riders around us and we want to make sure that we deliver it in a way that is exceptional because they have been asking for this from us global openings mm-hmm. new retail offerings new points of distribution for the brand they've been asking for that for so long and we've been working on it while opening 18 20 studios a year so we're ready 2019 is going to be a huge year for us it's a heavy lift i think that gets to the point you guys don't franchise and that that's purposeful obviously is it because you want to really have that control over the brand and the experience and 
Very much, very much. We're a live experiences company, there's no question. And so the ability for us to create the talent in the room, to create the talent at the desk, and to curate that experience, that can only really, we believe, be done by by our team. You know, I remember taking a SoulCycle class when I was newly pregnant. No one knew, Um, really, my husband knew. (laughs) But I was in, um, I was in one, I was on vacation, and the instructor came over to me, and it's like she knew. And she just sort of patted me on the back and like said, good for you. Like you just take it at your own pace. And that, I think that was my personal experience that speaks to, to what you're saying. That's great to hear. You know, really it was, great yeah. To hear. Yeah. I sold like all the way up till almost that baby was delivered. Good for I you. was the slowest person in the room in the back, <laughs> but that's okay. More from my conversation with SoulCycle CEO, Melanie Whelan after the break. Let's talk about your upbringing. So your parents and, and growing up in Baltimore, um, your father was an entrepreneur. What did he teach you that, you that you sort of live by as you lead today? He taught me a lot and more in, I think, watching him and how he carried himself. Um, he taught me the power of hard work. You know, he was up every day at five to exercise before commuting an hour and a half each way um, for the businesses that he started in Washington. Um, He taught me the power of listening to your employees and nothing being as important as the team that you have around you. And I think almost more than anything, uh, he taught me the the power of the relationship you have with your customers. Um, He was always in service businesses, and so we spent a lot of time on family vacations with him wandering off with a cell phone, the kind that used to have in a a briefcase, and listening to clients, you know, being frustrated with their experience. Um, and he, he would always say that Maya Angelou quote, it's, it's really not about what you say or what you do. It's just how you make people feel. And if they feel they can get to the CEO or the founder of the company and he's willing to listen on a Saturday when he's, you know, at Williamsburg with his family, then that's going to be a customer for life. And your mother, I was struck by one of the descriptions you gave of her and how hard she worked about her doing payroll on the living room floor. <laughs> like these success stories, it takes more than one person. It takes a village, it takes a couple, it takes, so what, tell me about the the lessons she taught you on that front. Yeah, I think uh, these startups, you know, in the 80s, which is what they were that my father had, they were a real family affair. I mean, we would get up on Saturday mornings and we would all get in the station wagon and drive down to DC. He would work all day Saturday if not Sunday, and we would go either toward the Smithsonian for the 800th time or you know, do something else in D.C. But that was we were all part of that journey and that story. Anytime he would take a new office space, we would always go and, and see it. Um, and my mom, you know, running, whether it was running payroll on the floor or coaching him through an issue, they, she was always part of that journey as well. And I think that also for us, you know, in life now is why my husband and I are such great partners, because I had these wonderful role models in my parents that even though my mother worked out of the home and raised my sister and I and was very active in our community, Mm -hmm. she was always a part of my father's business. And that's why, and I bless you for saying this, at least because it's my experience, you don't believe in work-life balance. You say there's no like going to life and then going to work. It's more integrated parenting. Do you think people have raw and honest enough conversations about the jungle gym and juggle that it 
that it is? No, absolutely not. And I'll tell you something. I read Michelle Obama's book on the way back from the holiday break. And she talked a lot about this in the book. I don't know if you've read it. I haven't her book read it. Yet. I know my mom told me I have to. It's on my list. It was, listen, she's incredible. The book was excellent. And she was so honest about the decisions that I wasn't aware of. I wish she had told her story sooner. You because do. in 2008, 2009, 2010, she, even leading up to his election in 2008, she was taking her kids with her on the campaign trail. She was taking them even earlier in her career into meetings, into interviews mm. to say, this is who I am. You want me to do this job? Yeah. This is my daughter. That's awesome. And yeah. we need more women saying that that's okay. Mm-hmm. I remember when I started at SoulCycle, that was the thing that was so refreshing was the founders would just say, I had a newborn. I started, Charlotte was three weeks old. They said, bring her into the office. Did We're going to make this retail closet into a room that you can feed her. And you did? Of course. Of course. And I was so lucky because my apartment was only 10 blocks from my office. I feel so privileged. But you were a leader. That's the thing is for most Americans, that's just they cannot bring their child to serve at a restaurant or work at a gas station. Or And I just wonder if you think that corporate America needs a wake up call when it comes to really allowing parents to not just survive, but thrive. Yeah, I think the first step in that is being honest. And I don't think that we're honest enough about how hard that it is. And I don't think we have enough women in leadership positions really acknowledging that publicly and also offering solutions on how this can work. You know, we've had a policy at SoulCycle now. I mean, I say this to my team all the time. Your family is the most important thing. You've got a conference. You've got a doctor's appointment. Of course you're going to do that. And you're taking the rest of the day home. Just be as long as I know meetings. where you are, just yeah. let me know. Of course. Um, what is your policy for new moms and new dads, like parental leave policy? We've actually just... Um, shifted some of this to make sure that it is equal, that it is a parental leave policy so that whether you're a mom or a new dad or an adoptive parent, that you're able to spend the time that you need with and do, do, what do the, what do new dads and new moms get for paid leave? It's yes. 12 weeks. That's great. 12 weeks of paid leave. And for moms and dads. Yes. When you look at the way you got here, one thing that strikes me is that you weren't always going to, I mean, you were planning to be an engineer. You went to an all-girls school. You studied engineer, engineering at Brown. But you were one of the very few few women, right? You had sort of this realization your first day in, in class there. Yes, I grew up 12 years of girls' school with 70 girls, you know, many of whom are still my very close friends. <laughs> really? And my mother believed. The whole reason we lived in Baltimore and not in Washington where my father worked was she really believed in the power of education, that anything was possible with a great education, and that as a having two daughters in the early 80s, putting us into girls' education was really important to her so that we never looked over our shoulders when we raised our hands and always found our voice. And so coming out of that experience, which was really a microcosm you know, sure, sure. And, and somewhat of a utopia, I would say, um, although girls can be sometimes tougher than boys, I, I was think. just going to say, was that <laughs> tough? Coming out of that and then starting at Brown, my first lecture the first day, we had 150 people, and I think there were less than 10 women, girls in the room, looking around, I thought, where are all the women? In my science classes, it's all women. In my math classes, it's all women. But that was also really powerful as well, because the truth of it is, the world and a lot of the rooms that I'm in are majority male. Still? So depending on which office I'm in, yeah. Not in my office. Yeah. But, you know, I spent, as a CEO, I spent a lot of time raising money, talking to investors with my board members. It's, you know, it is a 50-50 world, and we have to be comfortable finding our voice and being as powerful with men in the room as women in the room. And I think that's what 
engineering at Brown taught me. So what role should, should or do you think there's a role government should play in that? And you saw what happened in California this year where mm-hmm. it's now mandated that companies over a certain size have at least one female board member and it's going to go up from there. Um, I think it should the, should, I mean, we see that in Europe. There's quotas for some. I think we need some catalysts for change. And I think if left to our own devices, we're not going to make a lot of the changes that we need. And so I think that that's excellent. I think we, as women, if there are going to be quotas on boards, you know, you want the best candidates for the board, for the company, for the right time, for the growth of that business. But I think we do need some catalysts for change because there's no question that there, a diverse group of people on a leadership team is going to achieve a better outcome. So I think you and I start our day the same way, except I don't get to, go to I don't get to work out in the morning because I have to prepare for the show. I miss my morning workouts. I try to in the afternoon. But I had read that you you start your day with three practices of gratitude. Is that right? I I try to. Me too. Yes, most mornings. Yes, and if not, then we do that at night as part of my bedtime routine with my kids. Oh, you do it together. Yes. Oh, that's good. I do it alone, laying in the dark, not wanting to wake up. And then I think, <laughs> what are three things I'm thankful for? And usually it's like my son's smile, my daughter's cackle and Aww. something, you know, but I, but I do that and it's helped me. Yes. For sure. Yeah. Very it's helped me. But doing it with your kids, I think is a very cool thing. Do you do the rose, thorn, and seed? Well, your kids are so young. I don't know. I, what is that? So we do um, your rose, your thorn, and your seed. Oh. So what was your rose today? Oh. What was your thorn? And then what's your seed? Oh. Your seed is something you're looking forward to to come tomorrow. And the, try that the amount of nights I hear, I didn't have a thorn today, Mom. Those are, those are the good days. Those are the good days. So before we go, I'm really interested in the, the Me Too movement and moment and if this has changed you as a leader. That's a really great question. I think changing me as a leader, probably not as much, only because I have built a company that has really been focused around not just diversity, but female leadership. You know, 86% of our leaders in the field are female. Mm. Uh, My management team is, I don't know the exact count these days because things are always moving, but majority female. And we have really worked hard to create a space that is about this work-life integration and about a space that gives fair opportunity across the board. And so, um, you know, I hear the stories from my friends, my mentors, and I hear how their lives have changed and their bosses have changed or their work environments have changed. And I just, I think that from the beginning, SoulCycle has been really true to who we are, female-founded, female-led. So I'm not sure it's changed me. You have a message for women. Don't be on the bottom of your own to-do list. That's sort of part of my, sort of one of the things I'm thinking about this year is at least like being kinder to myself. Something my mom always taught me, be nicer to, why aren't you nice to yourself? Tell me what you mean by that. Don't be on the bottom of your to-do list. Did you hear Glenn Close's? Oh, I was so moved by it. I also, like we, it was in our show and then there was some breaking news so we, we had to canceled out of the show but yeah I mean, it was how so great moved. was that that is exactly how we all need to be thinking right we t- take care of everyone around us and you know I was just in Australia for the holidays with my husband and his family and as our parents are aging it just becomes more and more complicated you're running a company you've got kids you've got parents you've got family and you know not to sound trite but that's where soul cycle is so magical it is 45 minutes that's just about you 
it's just about music mm. and someone in front of you saying to you, you can be stronger tomorrow than you are today. And it, it's just, it's that simple. If you don't make the time, you know, people ask us all the time, can you make 30 minute classes? I'm too busy. No. The <laughs> point is you're taking care of yourself for 45 minutes. That's the experience, right? And we don't do that enough, even as human beings, but certainly, I think, as women. Yeah, I think we often take care of everyone around us first. And I love taking care of people, but if you don't take care of yourself, you're not as good a person to be around. Yeah, that's exactly right. So should we end with some rapid fire? Oh, fun. These are fun. <laughs> what business leader do you admire the most? Howard Schultz. You do? Oh, you do. Interesting. Do you think he's going to run for president? I hope so. Who's your hero? My father. Uh, you rode your, in your first Soul Cycle class in 2008. How many Soul Cycle classes do you think you have done? Oh, probably 250 a year, 10 years, so 2,500 classes. Wow, a lot. Biggest Soul Celeb moment. Oh, for sure. Michelle, M- Michelle it, Obama. Yeah, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> Michelle Obama. The, our first class with her, 2014, August 5th. Kathleen Kolkowski taught the class. I'll never forget it. Watching out the side of my eye. Did you die next to to her? No, we, no, because the Secret Service had to be around her. This was the first class. Um, So just try, I put myself in a place where I could kind of see how she was reacting because all we wanted was for her to have a great experience. Did she come back? You don't know the story? I don't know the story. Oh my gosh, first of all, we're in the book, which was the highlight of reading the book. (laughs) Um, No, she rode with us when she was, when he was in office, she rode uh, with us three times a week. Wow. No, I had no idea. Close the studio for her, but yeah. And the Secret Service would ride around her? Um, They. Man, I bet she likes taking Soul Cycle classes with other people now. Don't you think? (laughs) All right. Um, And going to Target. That's what she said in the book. I love going to Target. (laughs) Beach or mountains? Beach. East Coast, West Coast. East Coast. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Instagram. Favorite soul song? Gypsy Lady Gaga for the Go Home. Okay. Favorite soul instructor? Can you do that? Could never. Could never. (laughs) (laughs) Favorite soul studio? Oh, Tribeca, my home studio. And let's end on the handoff, because I have to get my husband into this. Oh, yes. The parental weekend handoff. So here's what you do. You're going to get up. You're going to come to Soul Cycle. You're going to take the 8.30 class. Your husband is going to be feeding the children as you leave. The meal will be done at 9 o'clock. At 9, he will leave the home with the children. They will be fed, and if they are in diapers, the diapers will be changed. You will walk out. You fork at 9.15. Children will be handed into your arms. He will walk in, and you will be ecstatic going to get a cup of coffee with your fed and bathed and diapered children. Look at that. Well, that is Melanie Whelan and David Whelan circa 2012 to 2016. That's when everything goes according to plan. No kid throws up. (laughs) Right. No kid's naps are off. All right. Melanie Whelan, good luck. I look forward to seeing what this year brings, and thanks for your time. Thank you so much. Of course. Great to be here. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Boss Files. If you're a new fan of the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and subscribe. While you're there, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. As always, you can follow me at CNN. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.